John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 8, Entry 1446.EZ2734, Certificate Number 27264, The Wreck of the Titan. I don't actually remember how this came up, but at some point during this entry about uh, paranormal predictions of the titanic sinking yes uh someone it must have been you it wasn't amy mann somebody asked about why mormons all theme the naming of their children is this something you would have asked about huh i don't remember amy mann having the opportunity to throw a question at you she was just there as uh as color so it must have been me we chatted a bit about her uh her ouija board experience or something but, oh but i don't remember talking about i'm not sure have Why you, do Mormon families theme their children? Well, when you, I think you, when you, is this something you could have asked? Do you feel like that could come from the mind of John Roderick? Yes, it's okay. anything's I mean, possible. I mean, who knows what's going on in that seething mass? I but. also feel like I could have said something that prompted you to ask the question rhetorically of yourself. <laughs> Sometimes I just look in a mirror and I think. Why do Mormons theme that? <laughs> well, as I recall, when this came up, I said, no, I don't think that's really a thing. Tom, Tammy, Tambra, it, it's not, we, Tallulah. Mormons do not, in fact, theme the naming of their Tinker children. Bell, that's very odd. And Tank. the funny thing is we came backstage after, because that was the show we were doing live. Right. And comedian uh, Mike Kaplan, who is very funny, was there in the dressing room. Yes. And his girlfriend you, you remember his girlfriend. I do. She, she was fun. And she was delightful as well. And she, and she said, "What? yeah, what is up with that? All my Mormon cousins have, uh, what? I can't remember what her thing was. They all have five-letter names. Or they, Cherise, all, or, Chemise, or they all rhyme with something. Charisse. And Charisse. Mindy came backstage and she said, oh, yeah, like my aunt and uncle have seven or eight kids and they all start with the letter J. And I said, was I wrong? Is this a thing? Do Mormons theme their kids' names? And Mindy said, oh, absolutely. She said... Uh, Jim, Jane. She had a college roommate. Jehoshaphat. Oh, no. Her cousin's best friend. All their kids have last names. As first names. Yes. That's not a very good theme. But Jefferson, well, they actually, Smith. They actually are presidential names. Jackson, oh. Kennedy. Those uh, are all Democrats. You don't want to do that in Utah. Oh, boy. This family, I think, should go into family jail. What are the other ones? Uh, Cleveland? I don't, I don't have a list. Yes. Name other Democrats Harrison? and probably. 
But she says she also knew uh, a family when she was a kid, Latter-day Saints, who's, they all had nature names like Forest, Robin, Spring, Brook. Good gravy. What about, That's almost wh- like the Leaf Phoenix family. The problem is that you only had two kids. So to theme them would have been kind of weird to just be like, it, it would be like Sufjan Stevens. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do all the states. That's what I said. I said, Mindy, we're going to have 50 kids. That's right. And we're going to do... First one- one's named Nevada. <laughs> we have been naming, we've been theming our dog names alphabetically. We had a B, then a C, then a D. Um, well, that presumes a long life. Yeah, we're going to have 23 more kids or <laughs> dogs. Uh, but uh, with the, we accidentally did, we accidentally did theme the kids' names. You only have one kid, so you also have a theme. Yeah. It's true. Uh, oh, we gave our kids several names. So there are a lot of themes within the theme. Uh, themes within an intra, intra-child intra theming. Intra-child theming, yeah. That's what you got to do with smaller family We sizes. gave her one goth name, one family name, one inscrutable name, and then her name. We, uh, my son's full name is Thomas Dillon, uh, which is kind of an accidental reference to the poem Dylan Thomas. Yeah. But then we gave my daughter a Welsh name which we later found out happens to be the name of Dylan Thomas's wife. Oh. So we've created some kind of Welsh incest theme. Is her middle name Simaru? <laughs> is, is that, it, is that lo- how you say that? <laughs> is it Lothlorien? Or, uh... Yeah, the Lothlorien is my favorite Welsh word. Yeah. Uh, my wife's favorite is, uh, and this is a friend of a friend's story, so this may not be true, but she had a college roommate story of a family that named all their kids Car names. Oh, cool. Like a Corvette. A Mercedes and, and a Porsche. Oh. I don't think Corvette and Mustang sound very. <laughs> this is my son Mustang and my daughter Corvette. I guess it's true. If from... that hasn't happened, I will give you $50. Today, none of the names are, are muscular enough, right? They're all a little bit. Porsche, Mercedes. Even the, you know, Corolla. They all kind of sound f- a little bit fluid and, yeah, right. uh, and, and, uh, you know, feminine or at least kind of gender neutral. Yeah. Um, so for like, for people picking a new non-binary or gender queer name, you know, you could do worse than looking at the new line of Hyundais. Sure. Sure. Uh, the, uh, like uh, Cimarron, a Cadillac Cimarron. You could name your child Cimarron. I guess what, SUV, that's, that's pretty gender I fluid. guess if you want something like Corvette or Mustang, you just need to pick an SUV name. Yeah, Tacoma. SUVs are all named after terrible places like Tacoma that you would never want to go. I guess Durango is an okay place there to be. There are a lot of people from Tacoma right now that are that are going on Patreon and canceling their subscription. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching it drop right now. I, I think that you need to expect to have a bunch of kids to feel like you need to think of a theme in advance. I bet you a lot of themes come as a result of them naming a kid Tom, and then they have a second kid, and they name her Tammy, and then they're like, oh, wait. So you think after two kids, they see the accidental connection? Yeah. Or it could just be with the second kid. You know, it's always hard to start with a blank piece of paper, you know? Like, it's nicer to have a writing prompt. If you if, if you, you, if you already th- named one kid. If you had a third kid, what is a Dylan Thomas-adjacent name that you might apply uh aren't you you're the welsh one in the room yeah don't you have uh latrasant that'd be a weird name tom jones tom jones (laughs) we'll we'll name all our kids after famous welshmen this is tom jones this is sir anthony hopkins jennings uh this is uh david lloyd george jennings this is Catherine zeta jones jennings (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm now out of famous welsh people hey sorry 
Oh, sorry, John Roderick James. Thank you. Do you want us to name a child after you? I didn't know we were counting Welsh Americans. Well, and I'm only, you know, I'm only a quarter Welsh. And you're only a quarter famous. Hey. Entry 1432.MT0823. Certificate number 28232. The Wild Goose. It's a quiz, John. What is the Wild Goose? Wild Goose is John Wayne's minesweeper. Yes. Which is wooden hulled because... Oh, yeah. We got some feedback on this. Yeah. Wooden hulled because... We said it was because that would interfere with the magnetometry or whatever. And it turns out that is not the only reason. Is that right? I'm not even sure if we did say that. We needed to have said that it interferes with the magnetometry. I think we might have said something... Oh, it's like... Aren't they more? They're more resilient to explosives. Yeah, right. That the wood, the wood is flexible, so it doesn't, it doesn't blow up. But I think, I think uh, the, the consensus was that minesweepers are wood because mines are magnetized. We also had, I don't know if you saw this, several people who had been aboard the Wild Goose. Did you know we have at least two listeners who have been on the Wild Goose? Really, Douglas sent us a. Uh, because it's it's now an event venue, so right. so Douglas sent us a uh, a photo of him in 2001 at a wedding on the wild goose on the wild goose, and you can he's he's just out of basic. It looks like so he's. Um, Do you he, mean he's no longer programming in basic, or he just he is, left basic training? He's no longer a basic bitch. No, he flew in from Fort Bragg. Oh yeah, he's in uniform. EOAC? <laughs> Didn't get to sleep last night. And there's a picture next to him. He's. It looks like he's maybe st- standing. What is that? Is he behind the bar? There's a picture to his left, our right, which you can only see like an ear and the side of a head. It's been cropped. But once you know that that is kind of a 70s portrait of McHugh era John Wayne yeah. with kind of the slightly shaggy hair and maybe sideburns, you can totally tell it's the side of John Wayne's head. That's cool. And we got an even cooler note from Rachel who was at some kind of company event shortly after giving birth and had to uh, spirit herself off into the bowels of the yacht in order to pump. Oh, yeah. So she so she is the only one of our listeners and maybe one of a very small number of people on Earth who has ever pumped breast milk on, on John Wayne's yacht. We can never know. We can never know the true number of people, but we have to assume that she's in a very small, exclusive group. We could estimate it. How would you go about estimating it? Let's say about... Uh, How many people have been on the Wild Goose? Well, this is an addenda episode, so only a few thousand people are listening to this right now. But if you, like Rachel, have pumped breast milk aboard John Wayne's yacht, uh, you just need to let us know. And if nobody else tells us, then, you know, of the few thousand people who heard this, Rachel is the only one. One in every 2,000 people has pumped breast milk <laughs> aboard... <laughs> Aboard the yacht, but wait—the number that that uh, math doesn't really turn out so great, because if it really is one out of every two thousand people on Earth, that's three and a half million people who have pumped breast milk aboard huh, the wild right. goose. Okay, well, that seems reasonable. Have you ever pumped wild goose aboard the the breast <laughs> milk? SS breast milk? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess what, it's not the it's gray goose. Never mind. Right? Is there is there a drink called wild goose? Is there there's a, wild turkey and, and there's gray, gray goose. Ah, uh, I messed it up. So you can't really pump wild goose. You could. Well, I've pumped a wild goose, but that but in a different way. It <laughs> swallowed my keys. 
Oh, I see. I had no idea what was going on in the story, and I was, I was, I was pretty unhappy, honestly, with the story as it, as it progressed. Entry 542.jb0807, certificate number 45417, grade inflation. We had... I bet a lot of replies to this from people that were mad that we called their 4.2 GPAs into question. Uh, We heard multiple theories from people with their own thoughts about what powers... uh, Grade inflation. Um, Meritocracy. Grade grade inflation is a direct result of everybody getting better. Oh, I see. Like, we we all deserve to get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all way better than ever before. Than at any other time in the Earth's history. Our kids are smarter than we were, and we were smarter than our parents. If anything, maybe grades are even deflating, and we wouldn't know because, like— we're getting so much smarter. We do actually deserve a plus plus plus. Right. Right. 100%. Even though my grandfather could recite all of Shakespeare and the Bible, I'm a lot smarter than him because I know how to DM people on Instagram. Honestly, memorization probably is a skill that's in decline well, because so much decline. of, so much of education, so much of pedagogy used to revolve around just, okay, memorize these 60 lines of Virgil in the original Latin. Uh, I don't, maybe to dubious advantage. My mother's friend, Byron Coney, is uh, probably, boy, he's getting close to 90 now. And Byron, when you talk to him, will throw in um, English romantic poetry in any conversation and always has. 50 years ago, he just would make little quotations because he has memorized it all. And I don't know a single person that's memorized all that kind of thing. I know you know the average rainfall in the Amazon basin. Uh, I do not. What is it? What's the average ra- rainfall in the Amazon basin? I just said I don't. <laughs> I know you do. That's got to be a question that comes up in pub trivia or whatever you do for a living. I don't have to know trivia anymore. No. Like I'm... Oh, I'll drink to that. I'm, I'm semi-retired and like somebody can just tell me some boring fact and I can be like... Hey, buddy, that's a boring fact. I, uh, you just said it, and I already forgot it. On the subject of uh, great inflation, here's a workaround we heard about from uh, Pat McConnell, formerly uh, U.S. Navy. Hello, Pat. Who talked about the fit reps system. Do you know what this is? I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Office. Uh, he's he's capitalizing it all like it's an acronym. Right, fit rep. But it actually it just appears to be short for fitness reports. It's how officer... Uh, Fitness and uh, merit are, is. Are measured. you sure it doesn't also stand I for know, that's, federal that's interest in uh, I mean, that's training? What, that's what Congress would do. But does the military do that so much? What come up with ridiculous acronyms? It's the number one thing the military does. <laughs> that's why we. That's why we give them all that money. That's why we can't tax the rich. Yeah, let's ask Comrip Sap Dip. So, uh, in the Navy's fit reps system. You, there are seven attributes that you were you on which you get graded from one to five, but the Navy is aware of the tendency to inflation that is going to exist in any system. So along with your fit rep, you get two other numbers. Hmm. You get the average of every other officer at that rank being rated by that reporting senior, and you get that reporting senior's average grades over their career. So it's like they it's kind of a curve. They normalize it by that officer. Right. By saying, well, that officer gives people uh, inflated grades. Yeah. So we're deflating their 
Like this person has right. a 6.2, but he's getting that from a guy that gives everybody a 6.2. This is actually a fairly average officer. Right. And I've heard, you know, recently, I think I've heard of a similar system. It's kind of a problem in the judiciary. Like on the bench, you've got, a, you know, judges have a lot of discretion in terms of both decisions and uh, sentencing. Right. So uh, I think the venue I was reading about this or the area I was reading about this coming up is in terms of immigration judges. Like some will grant an insanely high number of citizenship petitions and some will grant a very low number. And so really one of the many broken things about the U.S. immigration system is just, is just a crapshoot whether you get judge uh, Statue of Liberty or judge let's, sure. let's build the wall. Judge Cleveland or Judge Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. For example, like Anthony Kennedy? Yeah. I think he's retired. Thank goodness. Uh, no, not thank goodness. He turned into Brett Kavanaugh. He went into a cocoon and he, tr- he, he came out drinking, drinking beer and squeezing nipples at parties. My, uh, my, a good friend of mine from high school went on to teach law at Notre Dame, and he is a conservative Catholic uh, legal scholar. Very, very, it takes a, has a very like Catholic take on everything. And he spent the, and he was a, he clerked for Rehnquist when he was in law school. He took this line against Anthony Kennedy starting in 1990. Like he's a hack? What's his, what's his issue? He was a compromising, you know, Republican in name only, oh, liberal sympathizing guy who couldn't put his thoughts straight. And, oh, he just was... He was the only guy in America, as far as I could tell, that was that hated that Anthony Kennedy, tilted against <laughs> Anthony Kennedy, and I was like, Anthony Kennedy, why? Well, come on, of all the justices to be, you know, to be mad at, why not go after Ruth Bader Ginsburg? You're the one that, and he's like, no, it's Kennedy. He's the betrayer. Is so, he? Is he happy? Do you think he's happy now that Kennedy requ- retired at just the right time to to have Brett be, Kavanaugh be replaced by some young awful Federalist? I society cannot guy? believe anyone is pro Brett Kavanaugh, but of course I'm wrong. I think there are millions of people. I feel that like are. you and this guy may not agree about the judiciary in every respect. In every and the thing is, we didn't agree on it in 1983 when we were friends and sat and argued about the candidacy of Jack Kemp. <laughs> uh, so. We've been we've been adversaries all these many years, still good friends. I imagine if I were ever elected president of the United States, which maybe is still a possibility. You are uh, still eligible. You're over uh, you're over 35 now. Congratulations. Thank you. I would employ him in my administration somehow. Uh because he is such a because he is an intellectual, but he's also like been such a moral check on me. Everything that I believe he kind of believes the opposite. <laughs> like he loves the guitar playing of Eric Clapton, a, a guitar player I cannot stand. I admire the parenting of Eric Clapton. No, I'm God. just kidding. So bad. So anyway, you could you could apply. I've heard discussions that you could apply a similar system here. Whereas you know, if we're use, if this judge only grants eight percent of these petitions, and really the average is forty five, then you know. Then what? Well, what do we do with the judge? Give people a second chance, I guess. Like oh, if, if, you know, people who are denied by an unfairly uh, harsh just judge could but who, get a second shot. Who judges the judges, Ken? That makes you think. We got two suggestions of workarounds, or sorry, two suggestions of uh, alternate explanations for what leads. I guess that's not true. This is a, this is an implication of great inflation, I guess. Uh a listener whose name is certainly not Tailstake, but that's his Twitter, 
handle. Tailstake. That might be his call sign because he was a, uh, some kind of Navy pilot. Do you think so? Is that like a, would you be ever be Maverick if you could be tail? It's tail like of a dog and steak like eaten by a dog. So it's like tube steak. Well, tail steak, I mean, you know, he may, that may be a reference to his tail hook as he lands his F-14 Tomcat on the deck of the USS Kitty Hawk. Let's imagine that. Let's imagine that everybody on Twitter is a hotshot Navy pilot. All right. Uh, What's up, tail steak? His theory of great inflation is that uh, it actually services the corporations that that use it. Uh, that not only by, you know, we talked about this pressure to give every driver a five and fill out every customer service with highest possible recommendation. Right. Um, and and we suggested that this is just, you know, individual franchises defending themselves against corporate. Right. Uh, his point of view is that corporate itself wants all those ratings to be weirdly high because customers who are pressured to rate everything a 10 or a 5 or a 5 stars or whatever will actually, there'll be a feedback mechanism and they will start to think the service actually was really good. Oh, sure. Like, so... Like there might be an effect where you get fewer customer complaints if you harass customers into giving you high ratings. Do you buy that? I I, I feel like um, like in using Lyft and being asked to rate every driver and feeling that complicated set of emotions like, well, this person is probably an immigrant to the United States based on our conversation and... I probably have a lot of mouths to feed and I don't want to dis, uh, you know, I don't want to, um, cause them undue hardship by giving them four out of five stars. So I guess I'll give my good friend five stars for that amazing ride that I really loved everything about. I can't even remember what my complaint was. Okay, Karen. Good night. God bless. (laughs) Yeah. I think that, I think that's how it works. I think that you I think that if you sit and fixate on your um on your complaint that you will gradually you can easily turn it into a real incident when in fact all it was was a but it could backfire, a, right? Like if you're pressuring everybody to give you five stars, then it's going to make it seem all the more uh upsetting. When somebody, somebody leaves a one, yeah. Well, no. When somebody actually does have a bad experience and is getting hectored to leave five stars, it's going to make them angrier, right? Yeah, but I feel like those. I mean, just based on Yelp reviews alone, there just are not that many good restaurants in Seattle, and you already discount the one stars because anybody that leaves a one star, they've got a is a jerk. They've got a bone to pick. Yeah, they just had a problem. Um, it's really the two and three star reviews where the truth is borne out because all those people up at five stars are just, they're just cucks or friends of the owner. Except in Seattle now, all the two and three star reviews are like $12 for a burger. No, thank you. It's, it's people who haven't really caught up with how, with, with new Seattle economy now. Like that's, that's every review overpriced, overpriced gas should be a dollar a gallon. <laughs> Uh, Kirsty on, I think I'm saying that right. Kirsty on, uh, send us an email suggesting we talked about That's how probably also her Navy call sign. Yeah. Kirsty. It's got a silent J. Kirsty. Oh, oh, it's like Kiel. Kirsten. Kirsten. Uh, she, what is that? Swedish? Norwegian? 
Danemark. Danish, yeah. She suggested, we talked about how movie audience ratings of movies uh, are do not center around the center of the bell curve, but instead the average audience member says the average movie is, you know... 4.7? Yeah, 4.7 out of 5 stars. <laughs> and her suggestion for this is selection bias, because... We are not actually sending everyone to every movie. Oh, of course. You've already and, chosen the yes. movie you think will be good. So not only have you kind of invested, you've got the, uh, what do you call it? The um, uh, Your pot committed. Your, your sunken cost yeah. Yeah, of having paid 30 bucks already. You're, you're kind of, you'll feel like a dope if the movie's bad. You know, I have the opposite experience. And partly it is that every movie I reject seeing, in my mind, I give it a one. <laughs> And so then I st- then I go. Your to the average movies. score must be like one point oh 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 one. Then when I go when I go to the movies, I'm like, prove me wrong. <laughs> and you know, do you it, watch the whole movie standing up with your hands on your hips? If a movie gets up to a three, I feel like I haven't wasted my money. Mm. But to, for me to give a movie a four, it has to have more than just a lot of superheroes. Kirsten's point is that a lot of it is going to be based on genre. Like people will go to the kind of movies that they normally think of as four to five star movies. Like I just love every rom-com, you know, I give a break to every rom-com. I give a break to every horror movie, you know, this is going to have car chases. And then you sit down and if it has car chases, you're like, there we go. There it is. Four or five stars. Just like I said, that's what I wanted. So I I guess at least way to go for people for having such good self-knowledge. Well, and maybe that's the other thing about me. I don't want anything out of movies. What are you What are you expecting to happen? I just go there for the popcorn. Five stars for popcorn. Sometimes. Entry 138.JB2212. Certificate number 36737. Bode's Law. This was a probably illusory pattern of where planets orbit the sun. Do you remember this? Yeah. You have no idea. Sure. sure. Oh, yeah. I I could say anything right now. Where the Shurns opens the fronts. Bode's Law relates the uh, compressibility of a car's bumper to the likelihood of road deaths. I loved that episode. Remember? Remember how good it was? Sure. Uh, John, no relation, I assume, emailed us to say that there is actually still a very avid proponent of Bode's Law who still believes in and writes about this mathematical relation that we now know to almost certainly be bogus. Is this a person with a scientific background that is otherwise respected? That's what's interesting. He is at the top of his field, and he is not a scientist. Do you know who Walter Murch is? Is he a pharmacologist? (laughs) That's that's Merck, I think. Uh, Walter Murch is a groundbreaking movie guy. He started out in sound editing and mixing. He was working with uh, Coppola and Lucas in the 70s, those guys. Uh And so he's the guy that... Really, he made his bones doing that all that innovative sound work on the conversation. Oh that, yeah, right. Where you know Gene Hackman is listening and all the. I keep meaning to rewatch that the conversation. Oh, Have that's you just watched a it fantastic recently? movie. It came out the same year as Godfather Part Two, and so Coppola won all these Oscars for Godfather Part Two, and I kind of feel like he could have easily won for Conversation. It's just fantastic. All right. all right, I'll watch it. I'll watch it again. Young Harrison Ford, young Cindy Williams. Really? Yeah, and young. Oh, there's somebody else. Who's the other radio surveillance expert? Anyway, Gene Hackman's a surveillance guy. And so the, the movie has this super kind of innovative, subjective 
It's like uh, rear uh, window, sorry, right? Ob- objective he, sound. Yes. He watches. He he, he witnesses a, a murder. It's an audio rear window. Yeah. And it's got this kind of very interesting objective kind of personal sound where you're kind of hearing how stuff feels instead of what it's actually like. He later got into. Is it an ASMR movie? Maybe because it's got a lot of. He also uh, he did sound work on all three Godfather movies and American Graffiti. He's a film editor as well. He's got an Oscar for, looks like, The English Patient, but he also edited Apocalypse Now. Hmm. Uh, and he he directed one movie only, I believe, and I don't know if you're the right age to have been given nightmares by uh, Return to Oz. Do you know right. this movie? Right. It's like an early 80s sequel to The Wizard of Oz, but like kind of set in a... German expressionist insane asylum. I did not see this movie. No, you should show it to your daughter <laughs> because it might, it might just mess her up for life. So what's his trip with Bode's law? He kind of feels like, although he doesn't have a scientific background, he loves the idea that science would show, you know, inner harmonies and, right. and beauty, you know, the, the all this music of the, of the spheres stuff. And even though that's a little out of style, since we do not expect every scientific truth to be aesthetically pleasing no, anymore. Maybe you don't. He, well, you and Walter Murch apparently really do. So he write, he has written, I believe, whole articles and books about Bode's Law from the expertise of a film, of editor. A film editor. And it's, it, it's actually kind of, of interesting. I think he's... Uh, there's actually a new book. This book is not new. This book is now three years old called Waves Passing in the Night, Walter Murch in the Land of Astrophysicists, which is about what it's like today to be an amateur scientist. It's not by him. It's about him. Yes. It's kind of an analysis of his, uh, oh. of his kind of self-proclaimed expertise and what it, you know, what it means. Can, can people still be amateur scientists or has that passed the world by? Should we be open to the outsider perspective based on... Criteria like beauty. I was kidding about the about uh, believing that the the music of the spheres is, but I do believe in amateur scientists. I keep wanting to be the one that writes a writes a paper that that um, gives us insight into cold fusion because of something I saw in my refrigerator. They uh, might be at this point. Everybody's got a fridge and nobody's invented cold fusion. Yeah. Do you think it might be, that might just be wishful thinking, John? I don't know, man. I'm going to turn lead into gold and you're going to be sorry. You're not going to let me have any? Uh, I will turn a couple of lead things into gold for you. A couple? But luckily for you, a couple means three. That's right. And you can choose the lead thing. So you, whatever, pick three lead things. Can I make a Toyota Tercel out of lead lead and have you turn it to gold? If you make a Toyota Toyota Tercel out of lead, I will turn it to gold. If and when I perfect my alchemical processes. Deal. Entry 654.IS4316. Certificate number 34332. The International Cable Protection Committee. We heard a lot back on this episode. You, you, you might remember the the very angry listener who did not like that we perpetrated the myth that that sharks uh, are are a threat to these cables. Didn't you send me a picture two days ago of a shark eating a undersea cable? I didn't. Did someone else? Someone spoof me? No. Someone tweeted me. I think yesterday with a picture of a shark 
gnawing on a cable and saying, I only knew about this because of your episode of Omnibus. Well, Bob apparently has some kind of ICPC experience or his expertise is implied, certainly in the tone of his letter. <laughs> right. He says, I yelled at the phone. I yelled at my phone for the stupidity coming out of it. Yes. D- did we talk about this already or did you and I just talk about this at length in a sidebar? <laughs> we, you and I have definitely <laughs> talked about it. I can't remember if we've ever recorded it. But most of, most futurelings are are you know are fairly polite with us, but this they, well, uh, but they don't, Bob was really mad. Well, he he seems like he was mad while he was listening because we were talking about sharks nibbling on undersea cables. Yes, and, and he said that is a bad. And I mean, according to the ICPC's own report, sharks have been responsible for a small number of cable faults, but nothing since 2006. So maybe Bob's view is that this is something that's been blown out of proportion by the media that loves the idea of. Sharks eating the internet. Or that sharks have learned and grown, and why are we fixated on what sharks did 15 years ago? We should be we should be more appreciative of contemporary sharks. He also thinks you were a little uh, too... You, you uh, what, you gave the ICPC a little too much credit oh, by, he, he by said, comparing it to the UN. He said like, they don't have the authority that yeah, I implied they have. Yeah, it's it's voluntary. It's But but I said that the ICPC was not uh, like government affiliated. I, right. I I made it pretty clear that nobody had to do what they said. Bob right? says he it has never had any sway over the industry. It is not analogous to the UN. And I replied, well, wait, the UN doesn't have any sway. <laughs> I, I said, I think you're giving the UN a lot of credit if you don't think they're largely a symbolic and consultative body with purely voluntary authority over. Nice. Industry. Yeah. Send it back over the net at him. Uh, but Bob thought we overreached well, a bit on the, ICPC sounds like Bob had had maybe a dog in that race. Multiple people sent us a very cool map, which we probably should put up on the on the Patreon of where all the cables run. Have, oh, have you seen this graphic? I don't know if I have. It's, How cool! It's it's, it's very cool because you can see exactly where they cross the ocean, where they come ashore. Uh, thank you, Tom, and others who sent us that uh, from John with no H. So, Jonathan. Yes. We heard about Operation Ivy Bells, hmm. which I had never heard of. I've heard of Operation Ivy. Uh, there were Russian bases on opposite sides of the Sea of Okhotsk that American intelligence was sure was communicating versus undersea cable, so, and they wanted to tap it. And uh, he knew that when we had our cables come ashore, there were signs that were that would say basically... Don't, you, don't dig yeah, here. Don't anchor here. Uh-huh. You know, like you'll break a cable. And so he thought, well, I bet the Russians have those too. So they sent a submarine up the coast looking to see if there were signs that in Cyrillic said, don't anchor here. And they found them. And really? they, then they found the cable. And then they anchored a listening device to the cable. And, <laughs> and until a mole in the CIA exposed the operation, we had like 100% access to, to, um, to Soviet intelligence using this cable. Uh, we also heard. I don't know. Who Operation said, Ivy, just for the record, was an East Bay punk band from the from the eighties. So, if they had any bells on any of their records, those would have been Operation Ivy bells, right? But most punk bands did not have a whole lot of sleigh bells or cowbell. Uh, no, but but bells in the sense of vibraphones. <laughs> do, yeah. do, you, do you like vibraphone <laughs> punk a lot? Some I can't remember who sent this to me, but somebody also sent me a video about World War Two era. They would choose beaches where the tides and shifting sands made it impossible 
for fishing fleets to to moor or fish profitably, oh. like places where the shoals were too treacherous. So because there you could caught. make sure you could lay a cable, and then you wouldn't need to lay any of the what a good idea telltale signs. We also heard from. How is this related to the ICPC? Oh, right. We heard from Mike. All I remember is he he spoke. He's one of these Elon Musk boosters who. Yep. A lot of people uh, uh, are boosting Elon Musk. Uh, it turns out there's a few people on the internet who are uh, just obsessive fans of Mr. Musk and think yeah. that he is our uh, some kind of messianic savior because he yes. is using science to solve the world's problems, something that no one else has thought of. No, Certainly no governmental body no. has thought of. Science! Uh, mm. And he mentioned something that, uh, that we I don't think we mentioned on the show. We kind of implied that undersea cable traffic's at the speed of light. And of course, that's subject to the the medium of the cable so even fiber optics not it's actually the speed of right light. it's like a third it's on the order of magnitude of the speed of light but it gets actually cut down by the the physical medium and one reason why that's preferable to satellite communication that i had never thought of is that it's a shorter distance being covered if you oh. don't have to bounce up into orbit and then back down if oh. you can if you can just go along the curve of the earth of course you get faster results uh, it's not just a matter of, of bandwidth. It's actually speed. Even if they were at the same speed, yes, uh, it would be shorter. Shorter ground is being How covered. How fascinating. You know, you, all, you often see those diagrams and think that the satellites in low Earth orbit and the distance across the Earth from one place to another, it creates a, a triangle where the hypotenuse is actually the distance over land because yes. of what it looks like on uh you know on a cartoon that you see in Saturday on Saturday morning um but of course space is a lot further away it depends on the distance of the satellite and uh our Elon Musk fan points out here that Musk's Starlink technology has proposed satellites in very low orbit and then you actually would get essentially the speed of light there's no fiber optic medium if you could put the satellite low enough geostationary satellites would be faster than hmm. a, a signal under the ocean. And you know who is interested in this? In this, uh, what, uh, 10 millisecond latency difference? Blofeld. <laughs> yes. Ernst Stavro Blofeld and Spectre. <laughs> no, investment bankers. Oh, sure. It's that little millisecond advantage. Because of all the kind of automated... Um, buying and selling that now goes on in the in the immediate aftermath of any change to the stock market, like big money is now going into every microsecond, right? Because a sufficiently big or early transaction can result in just you know a huge money difference. Well, maybe they can put all of their ill-gotten gains into creating a network of low Earth satellites that improve our internet. I don't think anything can go wrong here because it's the two groups of people I trust the most, investment bankers yeah. and Elon Musk. This is why you can't tax the rich. That's they, exactly what I was going to say. They will not give you a Starlink satellite constellation if you do that. Uh-huh. Entry 737.GA0514. Certificate number 37350. Love. This was about the Robert Indiana sculpture, not about the emotion. Love. You can love. Just, you can just say love. Love. Very good. 
love. This was the uh, this was the entry where you texted me and said. During the entry, you're sitting right here. You texted me after it was released and said, "Hey, I just got a text from somebody taking me up on my offer from the end of the love show. What was the offer? Do you? Do you oh yeah, somebody <laughs> was like, I'm taking. I'm going to take you up on that offer.' And I was like, I don't remember. But you were like, but offer. you were like, is it? The person said something like, "Is it open to 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 me and my wife, like our lesbian couples? Oh yeah, uh, eligible. Our, our, and you texted me and said, "What was the offer?" <laughs> <laughs> what was the offer? It was marriage. It was uh, you. You. Oh. It was something about a dowry you were offering. Oh. Oh yeah. I'm. I am available to marry uh, any any group or subgroup of people who are interested in marrying me. Will you marry a volleyball team? Yes. Okay. Men's or women's? It doesn't matter. Yes, I will. I will. I will. Uh, I will help you conceive. <laughs> Uh, if, I were, if you are, a, oh, we if, talked about this, didn't yeah, we? I know, I'm not sure, but it, it's an ongoing theme. I think we have mentioned this. I think, yeah, we have mentioned your David Crosby potentiality yeah, on, right, on an upcoming on an upcoming right. entry. Yeah, but uh, I think it was funny that when I told you that, you were like, "Oh, good, I told them yes." Like you, I think you had, <laughs> I think you had already replied, "Sure," and then sure. you were like, "Hey, Ken, what did I, <laughs> what did I offer at the end of the love show?" We heard from I think multiple people on Facebook who were annoyed that when we talked about. Robert, what was his birth name? The artist is Robert Indiana, but he's from Indiana, and that's no coincidence. He was actually named Robert Clark. When we talked about him changing his name to Indiana, we did not mention the most famous person ever to change their name to Indiana. Uh, not Indiana Jones. We yes. did mention him. Oh, Indiana Jones. I, I think we did not mention Henry oh, Jones Jr. Of course. Who, do, you, do you remember why he changed his name to Indiana? His father called him Indiana. His father calls him Junior. Oh, right, Junior. He called himself Indiana out of uh, respect for... Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight. <laughs> because he's a Hoosier through and through. Big Larry Bird fan. Big he, big fan of uh, uh, Governor Lou Wallace, right. author he, of Ben-Hur. He always drove a, a famous... Uh, uh, the Indiana car, the famous Indiana car. Is there a famous Indiana uh, car? Supercharged Indiana, they called it. <laughs> What is that? Like a like a pace car? At, just, at, at, it's just something I'm, I'm making up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there are. You know, the Indiana State Quarter might be the only one with a car on it. Oh. Because it's got like a... Oh, the Indi- Indianapolis 500. Yeah, it's got a yeah. race car on it. Right. Uh, no, he was named after the dog. So, oh. Remember Sean Connery's Mad? Right. We named the dog Indiana. Uh, we got a... It's a great name for a dog. It is a better name for a dog than a human. We got a note from Rob, who, uh, if you'll recall, Robert Indiana, after disappearing from the art world, he kind of went to coastal Maine and lived in kind of quiet seclusion there. And you and I, I think, imagined him living on some nice cottage with a with the surf crashing on the rocks of yeah, Maine. Right, a little island with with the with only a rowboat between it and the mainland. Well we heard from Rob who vacations uh quite regularly apparently in Vinylhaven, the the lobster island where Indiana lived and died. And even though he moved to a remote lobster island, he does not have a nice shorefront cottage. In fact, says Rob, he retreated to a three story building on Main Street, Harborside, next to the post office. In a former Odd Fellows Hall with a mansard roof, and Rob sent us photographs of this odd place where Rob. Sounds amazing, actually, to live in an old Odd Fellows Hall. 
And uh, Rob Ryan, our our, our uh, correspondent Rob, lived there at this at the same time, or you know, vacationed there at the same time. Indiana was still alive there, and it, he said it was definitely kind of a Salinger vibe, where the locals all knew him but would not out him to anybody. You know, would did would, he have a ton of fans coming to visit? Fewer than Salinger, one would think. Right. But uh, but you know they would they would not give him up to to visitors or tourists who are like, hey, isn't this the place where Robert Indiana lives? Right. Don't know. Don't know. I can't say. Oh, can't say. Oh, looks like your car's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the house was always kind of weirdly like boarded up or blocked, and Rob never found out if the inside of the building was some amazing sure, art, artistic wonderland. Or if it was basically Grey Gardens in there, like <laughs> if it was all hoarder stuff and spider webs. This is unlike the residents of Brooklyn, Maine, who were constantly outing E.B. White every time a tourist drove into town. They were like, oh, looking for E.B., eh? Well, right up the road. And our, when our friend— uh, I don't know why they all speak with Vermont accent. When our friend <laughs> John Hodgman wrote his book about—what's uh, the name of the town? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. He not only outed E.B.—well, I guess he, he makes no attempt to keep E.B. White's— No. Um— Secret identity. Secret, secret identity. Secret. It's like some main author who wrote for the New Yorker and wrote a book about pigs and spiders, but I'm not saying which one. Right. Also, uh, also a book on grammar. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pick. But also, like in that other book he wrote about, uh, a lot of which is about Maine. He kind of uh, he he like specifically uh, tells unflattering stories about some of his neighbors. And then at right. the end, he's like, but it's okay. Now we're buddies. And he said, I can tell this story. <laughs> so if you're moving to Maine, don't move to John Hodgman's town no. for you sure. You know, Michael Shabon lived there too. Oh, is now, that true? Now I'm outing him. Not lives there all year. That's it, Michael Shabon and uh, Ayala have Ayala. a house there. Um, their summer house is in outside of Brooklyn. What if we don't say it's Michael Shabon? Blue Hill. What if it's some American Pulitzer Prize winner who writes often about... Superheroes lives in the East Bay, but also bookstores between record stores between Berkeley and Oakland. He uh, and his wife loves him more than they. She loves the kids and gets canceled for it sometimes. Yeah, he's working on the new Picard series. He's all I'm going to say is he's the showrunner of a TV show about a former Enterprise captain. I didn't say which one. Entry 676.EZ2410, certificate number 38738. Joy of cooking. We heard a lot about the joy of cooking, because everybody's got cooking stories. Yeah, I knew when we did this episode that there were going to be a lot of futurelings that had joy of cooking stories, because it just feels like a futureling thing. We've got a pretty even split now between... Often you complain that the addenda is too Ken heavy, but there's a lot of there's a lot of John's shows in this one. Uh, for example, I just read this yesterday. Uh, Andrew pointed out that uh, did you know this that Canadian recipe measures are not the same as American ones? What? Do they are, are they seventy five percent smaller? <laughs> I'm sorry. Are they only 75 percent of uh, American amounts? Uh, I think those are the those are the um, those are the measuring spoons used by women. I think uh, they 72 percent. Andrew sent me um, a link to some YouTube videos of this Canadian chef who's always doing old 1910s and 20s 
Canadian recipes just for like molasses cake, cake right. you know, old timey donuts. I think I think you'd be into Donut this guy. Holes. And the, the, in passing, this guy pointed out that uh, that the the uh, the cup measure in Canada is um, by statute metric two hundred and fifty milliliters. Uh, starting when nineteen seventy six? Is this some like Pierre Trudeau innovation? When did the Canadian cup? turn into a millimeter cup. well the funny th- so the american cup was and is 240 milliliters but canada it, before we had the 250 milliliter cup it had a much smaller one that was only 227 milliliters a 20th of an imperial gallon hmm. uh and i'm not sure when the change would have been made is our cup a quarter of a of an imperial gallon our cup if our cup is not a, exactly not a gallon. If our cup is exactly 240 milliliters, then it has also been centered on the metric system. And let's see. US cup in milliliters is I'm doing this in real time now. No, it's not. It has not been standardized. It's 236.7. Sorry, 236.6 milliliters. So that's four fluid ounces. Yes, so that is based on a gallon. But why why does why did Canada have a 227.3 milliliter cup? We're going to have to have another addenda episode where some Canadian Is it a gallon issue? A, an yeah, imperial I mean, gallon versus I, an American gallon? I, I'm guessing that's true. I'm guessing we're talking about two different gallons but so this guy in these old recipes will um will not fill the cup quite full and he'll get angry notes from chefs being like hey buddy would you just um you know fill your cup measures right and he has to explain that i am but i'm doing 1915 cup measures wow okay speaking of canadian cuisine we often got we also got sent a link to the work of old man ludica (laughs) who is one of the leading folk musicians of the Atlantic provinces who records a lot about sardines, apparently. Old Man Ludica and his famous Sardine Symphony. He looks quite young in this video of him playing the banjo, but he actually has a song called uh, Joy of Cooking. Um, we can listen to a little bit of it now. The chorus says, I opened up a book on the shelf near my Bible, opened up a book for culinary survival. I took a look in the joy of cooking. So it's an ode to the the authority of the joy of cooking on the family bookshelf. You know, some of us have a hard time writing lyrics. But apparently not this guy. Apparently not. Have you ever been inspired to write uh, folk music? uh, Cookbook-based lyrics? Yeah, or folk folk rock about uh, a favorite cookbook? No. Well, you might might not kill you. My songs are all about being confused at why I'm sad at being unsuccessful with girls. Couldn't cooking be a metaphor for that? Like I tried to mix the the yeast, but the the thing didn't rise. Hmm. I feel like it writes itself. That is a kind of like a that's a bluegrass staple, right? The uh, the, the 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 bread won't rise. 
But not, or I guess, or the pancake mix won't rise. Is, is it a sexual metaphor in bluegrass? Boy, who knows what those people are talking about? I feel like it all happens so fast. There's not a lot of bluegrass songs about male potency. I would have assumed. Is that is that not true? Man, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with the bluegrass mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I try and keep my head down, mind my own business. What What will the bluegrass mafia do to you? Well, they hit me with frying pan. Nicole mentioned something we didn't on the episode. We talked about kind of secret family recipes and how funny it is that when people kind of zealously guard their uh, wa- right. waffle recipes. Just or tell me how recipe. your chili's made. I'm not going to profit from it. Nicole pointed out um, that this was kind of a vestige of an earlier culture where women had very little, very little opportunity for social prowess and advancement. But making the best apple pie in town was a... Exactly. A like crown if, if nobody at the church picnic, if everybody at the church picnic every year knows yours are the best turnovers or whatever, like that's a very real kind of prestige that, you know, in a world with no professional outlet for you. So that, I think that explains a lot of the secrecy. You it, know, it's I, not, it's not just ego. It's the people are right. Like they, they would lose prestige if, if the town knew how to make the thing. I have a, a, of a, a kind of family equivalent story um, not not that it's family equivalent, but that the story is equivalent and in my family. My daughter's mother's mother yes. is a seamstress who uh, professionally uh, modifies bridal gowns. But she also every year enters one of her own creations in these international sewing competitions. There, there are wedding dress competitions? No. Uh, or there may be, but she enters her designs in like general fashion mm. sewing competitions. I didn't know there was like a bake off for for dresses. That's it's cool. a massive, like an, a massive enterprise, um, global enterprise of people coming up with. You know, every year there's a there's a prompt, right? Like this year, the prompt is. Oh, it's like the um, Met Gala. There's a yeah, exactly. There's there's some there's some confining uh, terms. And then within that, you're meant to create a, a design. Right. And she has repeatedly won the championship so many times, in fact, that women all over the world are, um, you know, see her as like this this competition, this undefeatable um, five foot tall megalith of the of sewing, and she never tries to mass produce her designs or. She's still just like a gifted amateur kind of thing? She just makes these dresses, wins the competition, brings home the trophy, and then goes back to, um, you know, altering wedding gowns for Pacific Northwest brides. (laughs) And I keep saying, like, why don't we find a way for these wonderful dresses that everyone agrees are championship? Why don't we find a way to put them into the world somehow? Make them available. Make those patterns available at least or... And she's like, oh, I just did it because, it, you know, something fun to do on the weekend. Come up with this little sweater set or whatever, or the sailor ensemble. Does she keep, are there trade secrets the way there would be for a recipe? Well, there must be. Otherwise, how is it, how is it possible that one, one out of hundreds and hundreds of people competing in these competitions would win over and over? Over and over, right. Um, like she must be, yeah. Like she, she, what if she could be the world's leading designer yeah right but i mean you know she's a little old lady uh 
Nicole points out that many times these people who were who were pressed for their family recipe would all, would often feign ignorance. Sure. Oh, I just toss in a little of this and a little of that. I I, I wouldn't even because they don't want to say I'm not giving it to you. So they say, oh, I'd never write anything down. I don't know the numbers. Right. Or they give you the recipe, but with twice the salt and half the molasses. Ah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could <laughs> sabotage it. And in and so in Nicole's story, her grandma would often say that and. Uh, and when her parents were dating, her dad would kind of flatter her, her, his mother-in-law or future mother-in-law by complimenting her molasses cookies, the recipe to which nobody ever got. And as they were leaving the reception, after her parents got married, uh, mother-in-law slipped her an unmarked envelope that when opened had the molasses cookie wow, recipe that's that, it. that she had sworn didn't exist for I mean, decades. if you think about that's the Colonel's uh, special herbs and spices, right? The um, the recipe for Coke, the recipe for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, These the, are... the existence of the secret makes people crazier about the food. Yeah. People like a mystery when they eat? Not me. No, I want to know. I'm like, is this cilantro? Uh, Tell me exactly what's in this stew. The So we often hear from experts, professionals in the fields that we treat, and they are very kind, considering given the half-assed treatment that they've heard their fields receive from us. Right. They're like, I've spent 25 years studying this, and you talked about it for an hour. And here's your mistakes. <laughs> but people are still friendly, yeah, oh, yeah. except for that Bob guy. But uh, we heard from a uh, one of the world's leading academic researchers on the joy of cooking, I would have to assume. What? Somebody who wrote an undergraduate thesis on... The joy of cooking. And this is great. Elaine, uh, who actually went on to do a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science and is now, it's an, a, it follows. now an engineer at a, at a Bay Area cloud storage startup. This all tracks. As an undergraduate, she wrote, a looks like a, maybe a 10,000-word honors thesis called Cooking with Politics, Economics, Science, and Technology, which kind of she, she goes through every edition of The Joy of Cooking and sees how the era of its publication is reflected in its content. Oh, interesting, right? Because, of course, as stoves changed, as as food knowledge changed, this is all of interest to a materials scientist. It's it's fascinating. Like, I, I read and enjoyed the thesis. It's stuff I had never even thought of. I guess she, through interlibrary alone, she got a copy of every single edition of The Joy of Cooking, including the very rare first edition, which just showed up as a regular library book, you know, even though it, I'm sure it had some How cool. secondary market value of tens of thousands of dollars, one of the rarest books in America. And uh, she points out just really interesting things about the eras of the different books. For example, the copy of The Joy of Cooking that came out during Prohibition um, uh, moved— Use no booze. Yeah. Sold no wine before it's time. The cocktails chapter says most cocktails containing liquor are made today with gin and ingenuity. So basically, <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, even after repeal, uh, cocktails were moved to their own section within beverages so you could, so as not to embarrass the reader. Uh, so if you disapproved of drinking, it would kind of be ghettoized uh, in the book. She talks about how during the Great Depression, suddenly all these kind of um, money stretching recipes appear. Economy souffle. Mm hmm. Leftover soup. Stone soup. Exactly. All this stone soup uh, type of stuff. Similar kind of meat stretching and meat substitute things during World War II. Oh, meat stretching. That's a, that should be an Olympic sport. And she, she notes when all these international things first appear. You know, when did... Oh, yeah. When did tacos and pizza and spaghetti make it into the book? It's really interesting because, you know, she can even go by produce and, and talk about, you know, talks about like when do, when do grapefruits first appear? When do kumquats... <laughs> 
first appear in the uh, omnibus. It's really interesting. And, you know, originally all these notes about seasonality of the, of the produce have to change. Of course. Um, let me see. I, I think it's not till the 1997 edition that you've got recipes for chimichurri, raita, um, like peanut satay sauce, uh, salsa verde. Like a lot of this stuff doesn't even appear until until the 90s. But also how technology is reflected. Each new gadget really changes the joy of cooking. Like when blenders appear, they're uh, like suddenly a whole chapter of... Uh, of, of things you can make in a blender because it's everybody's so excited about the fat. It's just like today where there's like, what's the new Instapot recipe? What's right. the new sous vide recipe? Like, I guess the blender very much had that role. And, uh, you know, the first edition of joy of cooking predates ovens with, uh, thermostat control. Oh. So today you can just set an oven for three seventy five, but back then it would be set your oven to low, set your oven to medium and there would be so much variability. I mean, this is why oven thermostats were created. Right. But there would be so much variability back when it was just set your oven to medium that uh, Irma Rombauer created a workaround, which is, if you don't have a thermometer, here's what you do. You sprinkle flour in a pan and place it in an oven. Five minutes later, take a look. If it's delicate brown, that's around 300. If it's medium golden brown, that's... Uh, are in the 300s. If it's deep dark brown, your oven is very hot, 400 to 450. If it turned deep dark brown in just three minutes, that's very hot, over 450. So you can use a t- piece of tissue paper or a sprinkling of flour to to eyeball your oven so you know what temperature your settings are. So much ingenuity uh, in in past worlds. Anyway, thank you, Elaine, for sending this along. I don't I don't know how lucky we got that a uh, an apodem- academic researcher on the joy of cooking happened to hear. Of course she's a future line. Our podcast. Well, it's very flattering to us that all these smart people are listening to the show. Entry 587.LK0207, certificate 44261, the Hilbert Hotel. Okay, don't wow, worry. way, way back. We are not going to talk about uh, Cantorian set theory of infinite sets. Don't worry. There are so I'm just looking at uh, the stuff from back here. We're talking about a a, a Nazir and uh, Anita Bryant, Albanian bunkers. This uh, is a this was just a couple weeks before mail trucks. The anarchist cookbook. The only reason I'm mentioning Hilbert Hotel is because we received from a listener named Aaron uh, a a remix that draws heavily on the Hilbert Hotel oh. entry of the show. Called Omnibus and so on. Let me hear it. Let's uh, let's actually play it right now. Pump up the volume. Pump up the volume. So you pull the first guy off the first bus, then the first guy off the first bus, and the second guy off the first the second guy off the first bus. Then you take the first guy off the third bus, the second guy off the second bus, and the third guy off the first third guy off the first bus, <laughs> and so on. And in I this, hope somebody does a supercut of that with like some, like a cool drum beat behind it, and so on, and so on. And so on. Well, the first guy the first bus, first first bus, and so on. Third guy the first bus, first bus, first guy the guy the first bus, and so on, and so on. Well, the first guy the first bus, first first bus, and so on. Third guy the first bus, first bus, first guy the guy the first bus, and so on, 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 and so on. Release your inhibitions and and follow the stinky dancing goat with the flute. Omnivite. 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 Divide.
Cigarettes, you're probably going to drink pop. And after pop, you'll get hooked on the demon After marijuana, then you get on, then you start taking mom's pills from the medicine cabinet. And I think or mushrooms, depending on what kind of personality you have. And eventually you end up on the hard stuff. What do you think? Pretty deep. He included the gated snare drum that he says he knows you would like. Because you like that Phil Collins sounding. Uh, You know I do. So, yeah. um, I really hope that... Hearing that Hilbert Hotel show sampled really helped people imagine the thought experiment of the the different buses rolling up and the different orders of infinity. I feel like I could listen to that song for the rest of the day. And hamburger, hamburger. And it would just make you smarter every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blade Runner. That's right. It is. It's, is this because Rutger Howard died? Did his, did his ghost send us this stereogram? And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 8. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus. 